The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Apologetics Show number three on member-supported Restoration Radio. My name is Phil Stone, and I'm very pleased to welcome His Lordship Bishop Donald Sanborn, Rector of Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida. Welcome back to you, my Lord. Thank you. Restoration Radio is pleased to present the Apologetics Show as a members-only episode, and it is not available for individual purchase and download. To receive access to all Restoration Radio episodes, please visit truerestoration.org and go to the member area on the menu bar to find out details on becoming a member. The Apologetics series is using the text The Defence of the Catholic Church by Francis X. Doyle, SJ. So if you have a copy, please feel free to follow along. Used and reprinted copies are available via online booksellers and you can find these links in the show notes. So, my Lord, in Episode 2, Part 1 of the Revelation series, we covered Lessons 2 and 3 of the book. In that show, we discussed the meaning of Revelation, that Revelation is natural and supernatural in form, and that man is not free to reject a divine supernatural revelation if he knows that it comes from God. We also discussed how to recognize a divine revelation, and that man can know a divine revelation, and we discussed the marks of a divine revelation, especially miracles and prophecies. So in this show, part two of the Revelation mini-series, so to speak, we will be learning about the documents of divine revelation, in particular the Gospels and also outline the biographies of the writers of the Gospels, the evangelists. If you are following along in the text, it starts with lesson four on page 26. So firstly, my Lord, uh, launching right into the first question, why do we begin with the documents of Christian revelation in apologetics? Well, it's a very important point that most people might, uh, if apologetics is always talking to someone who is either a non-Catholic or even a non-believer, and it is presenting the credibility of the Catholic Church. It is essentially saying to someone, you ought to be Catholic, and these are the reasons why you ought to be Catholic. And so it has to go right down to the roots. Now, we know about Christ from the Gospels almost entirely. There are other uh, uh, references to Christ in classical literature and in history and so forth, uh, even secular history. Pliny, for example, uh, talks about the Christians, and Josephus, uh, who was a Jewish uh, <clears throat> a general who passed over to Romans to the Romans during the siege of Jerusalem. Uh, he talks about Christ. He talks about the resurrection of Christ. Uh, he, he, so it, it's a certitude, of course, that Christ existed, but everything we know about what he said, what he did, all of his supernatural qualities come from the Gospels. Mm. And 
uh, that's very important because if we're saying to someone, you must become a Catholic, well, the question is, how do I know that Christ existed? How do I know what he said, what he did? How do I know that these documents that you're putting in front of me are truly historical documents? How do I know that they're accurate? How do I know that what they contain is what the alleged authors put down right. on paper? And you want me to organize my whole life according to uh, the religion that you're asking me to accept? Uh, you have to prove to me that the sources of this religion are authentic and not merely fairy tales, not, not something, you know, that uh, someone made up, some fiction stories that yes. people made up. Uh, you want me to die for this religion if necessary. You want me to give up all sorts of worldly pleasures for this religion. And you must prove to me that it has historical value and that it is something that, is, that really rests on fact and not merely on somebody's fantasy. Mm. That's why it's very important to look at the Gospels as they are authentic and as they are credible. And that's what we'll look at uh, shortly. Okay, thanks. Uh, so what does the word gospel mean? Uh, we're getting down to the etymology um, of, uh, of the word gospel, and why are the writers of the gospels called evangelists? Yeah, uh, uh, gospel comes from good spell, uh, Anglo-Saxon words, uh, which mean essentially good news. And that's what the, word, the Latin word evangelium means. It's a practical transliteration from the... Uh, Greek euangelion, uh, which uh, means good, good announcement, essentially. Mm. Uh, eu in Greek, eu means uh, well or good, and uh, angelion is a message. That's why you have the word angel, because in Greek, angelos or angelos means a messenger. So it comes over into Latin as angelus, and then into English as angel. Uh, it means message. So it, it just means a good message or a good tidings, a good news, but that, that's a little trivial in, in the present context. Maybe good tidings would be better. Mm. Uh, so that, that's the word uh, evangelium, and so the evangelist is someone who wrote the Gospels, or the evangelia uh, in Latin. So uh, that, that's, there you have the, the root of the word. So it seems to me that uh, term, the good news and uh, evangelical, has been stolen a little bit, um, and it's more, it seems to me to be more, perceived to be more um, synonymous with uh, Protestantism and, and even the Novus Ordo. Um, it's, it seems uh, like they've stolen it. Well, yes, you see, Luther is the one that called his religion the evangelical religion, because he rejected papal authority, and he based it, as he claimed, uh, uh, entirely on Scripture, and especially the New Testament. So his religion was the evangelical religion. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the, uh, that's where you get the origin of the word evangelical for all Protestant religions. Uh, uh, and they they claim to be scriptural. Of course, they're not scriptural, but they claim to be scriptural. Mm. And uh, for this reason, they, they claim that word. So, the, yes, the word has been 
altered and vulgarized into meaning uh, in this country, in the United States, meaning uh, Protestants who follow what they would say, uh, follow, according to what they would say, uh, follow the Bible exactly and very, very literally. Those are the evangelicals. And uh, as opposed to mainstream Protestantism, which is pretty much like the Catholic Church, modernized, or the modernist religion, mm-hmm. modernized uh, and uh, generic uh, and, and full of rationalism. And uh, mainstream Protestantism has become what we call self-help, mm-hmm. how to deal with life, how, how to cope with life, life's problems, how to be a better person. Uh, you know, smile a lot and say good morning to people. It has become that yes. uh, mainstream, what we call mainstream Protestantism. But that's distinguished from evangelical Protestantism, which is, we, you would say, more conservative. And I would say at least they believe in God, and they at least they believe that sacred scripture is the Word of God. I'll say that for them, mm. which is a lot more than you could say for any modernist. Yeah. Well, at least we can say that uh, Catholics can lay claim to to the term uh, gospel, meaning the good news and um, or the good message, and that the uh, the writers of the gospels are evangelists. So, on to the next uh, question: Why are the gospels arranged in that order in the Bible? Uh, the uh, they arrange uh, accor- uh, according to time. Saint Matthew is the oldest of the gospels. It was written in uh, Aramaic and then translated into Greek. We don't have the original Aramaic. Uh, then uh, St. Mark's was written. Uh, he was the companion of St. Peter. And then St. Luke's was written. And then St. John's. Mm. Uh, most people think that because the apocalypse of St. John comes at the end of the New Testament, that he wrote that at the end. In fact, he did not. He wrote it much earlier in the 60s A.D., right. whereas he wrote the Gospel in the 90s A.D. That's amazing. Uh, because of heresies developing concerning Christ's divinity. And so you see the divinity of Christ very, very clear, uh, uh, clearly in St. John's Gospel, uh, not to say that it's not mentioned in the other Gospels, but he is emphasizing it. He's giving... Uh, specific miracles that point out the divinity of Christ. And he's also quoting our blessed Lord very, very uh, specifically concerning his divinity. St. John mentions only seven miracles of Christ. Right. Uh, whereas the others are talking about miracles all over, his, you know, all during his, his public life. And he mentions only seven miracles, and he mentions them in great detail. Uh, and uh, that was meant to point out his divinity. I think it's amazing that um, the evangelists wrote them from 20 to even more years. You're just talking about St. John um, after these events happened. And uh, I don't know about you, but I can hardly remember what I did last week, let alone 20 years ago. <laughs> so that's almost a testimony to um, to the fact that these are inspired you know, by the Holy Ghost. Um, and, yes, uh, yes, uh, yes. Their memories were, were aided by the Holy Ghost. But don't forget as well, their whole lives were transformed by mm. Christ's message. Yes. So I'm sure that these events were very clear in their even natural memories, in the sense that they are their uninspired memories. I'm sure they're 
they were very clear uh, because they they were completely transformed uh, by by being with Christ for three years. Uh, uh, but that's that's the reason why you see a little bit of difference in them because they're going from memory, mm. and uh, sometimes they're going from the testimony of others. Uh, as our uh, Saint Luke was with regard to the Blessed Virgin Mary, all the events of the early life of Christ, and uh, so that, that's, you see a slight difference because they are using their natural memories, but they are inspired. That is, they are aided by God in, in what they put down to paper in such a way that it is the Word of God, hmm. that it is not their Word but the Word of God. So the the in, inspiration is a very strong event. Uh, in the mind of the sacred writer, whereby he is writing infallibly concerning the things that have taken place, but they are using their natural memory. Mm. So it, it's a uh, you know, there's both nature and and God working, uh, you know, for the production of the book. Right. So on to uh, the next question, uh, question twenty. The first three gospels are known as the synoptic gospels. What's particular about them in contrast to the fourth? Well, the first three Gospels uh, deal with the same subject matter, more or less. That is, uh, they deal with the life of Christ and describe the same events, more or less. That is, you'll find something in St. Matthew that you won't find in St. Luke and vice versa, there are certain passages of each one that you don't find in the others, but most of what you find in St. Matthew you will also find in Mark and, and St. Luke. Uh, whereas St. John's Gospel is not synoptic, and that is he uh, picks out only certain miracles. Uh, he completely skips the first part of our Lord's life. Uh, he, uh, uh, he will quote our Lord directly and heavily, whereas the others will give summaries of what he said. Uh, the, so he, he is, he, you know, there are a few cases, like the multiplication of the loaves uh, that you find in the other Gospels. There, there is here and there an event that corresponds to the synoptics, but for the most part, he's talking about things that you don't find in the synoptics. In the... Um it's the Gospel of St. John that is in the, the last Gospel in the Mass, isn't it? And that's a very good summary, the introductory summary of, of a really a testament to our Lord's divinity, isn't it? In the beginning was the Word, um, uh, and so forth. Is that right? Yes, it's, it's a masterpiece. You can see that it is the inspired Word of God. It's a masterpiece, that the what is known as the last Gospel, which is actually the first few lines of St. John's Gospel, uh, uh, in in describing the procession of Christ from the Father mm. uh, and his coming into the world and the role of St. John the Baptist, uh, it, it, is, uh, it is just... Uh, it, well, that's why St. John has the eagle as his symbol, because his first few lines, that prologue of St. John, is it, it soars like an eagle. Yes. It, it, it just is something so sublime that it could never be written by any uh, purely human mind or hand. It's something that, that so clearly comes from God. It's truly beautiful. Yes. 
So on to um, the remainder of the Bible, the New Testament. If we could just uh, talk a little bit about that, please, my Lord. Uh, yes, the, the the Gospels and the other books of, uh, that follow the Gospels are um, the New Testament. So that is the new, we might say, law, uh, the new agreement, we might say, uh, that God has with his people. It used to be, before the, the New Testament, that God had a... Uh, a law that connected him to the people of Israel. Mm. And they were the chosen people, he was their God, they were his people. That is said many times in the Old Testament. But with the coming of Christ, and particularly with the death of Christ on the cross, the old law is finished, and the new law begins, and this is the New Testament. That's why our Lord said the night before he died, concerning his blood, this is the blood of the new and eternal testament as opposed to the Old and Temporary Testament. The, the Old Testament was a testament of preparation. The New Testament is, is forever, and will, will never have an end. And the New Testament is uh, with a people that are drawn to him uh, from not only the Jews, but also the Gentiles, the entire world, and throughout time, uh, uh, they are drawn to him by grace, and they uh, are not obliged to worship in Jerusalem, but his worship will be spread throughout the whole world. Mm. Uh, that's the New Testament in his blood. Uh, and so that's why when he died on the cross, the, the veil of the temple split in two as a sign of the end of the Old Testament, because the veil was a sign of the presence of God. That veil was very, very thick. It was six inches thick and, yes. and woven with gold, and, and, and uh, it was a magnificent piece of cloth. And it uh, was hanging in the uh, Holy of Holies, beyond which was the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark in which the, the tablets were placed and so forth, and the cherubim. The, uh, that was a symbol of the, of the presence of God among the Jewish people and uh, his abiding presence and assistance to them, uh, that is finished with the splitting of that veil. It's a sign that this is no longer how I am present to my people. He will be present now uh, by primarily the Blessed Sacrament of the altar. Mm. See, the, he will be present by the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass and the, uh, the priesthood, the Blessed Sacrament of the altar. And that will be uh, not only in Jerusalem, but throughout the whole world, wherever there's a church or a chapel or any place at all, he will be present to his people. So it's a whole different way of dealing with the human race. Uh, that's, that's why it's called the New Testament. There, um, there is other yeah. um, covenants. That, uh, is it right to say, I remember hearing somewhere um, back through my um, you know, spiritual reading, I suppose, that the covenant with Moses, of course, was uh, was was um, was one covenant with God, but God also tried again um, prior to that with uh, with Noah. Is that is that correct, or am I way off the mark there? So, uh, there was not a covenant with Noah in the sense that uh, uh, where whereby Noah was the author of the Old Testament, or in the sense the principal. Um, 
how would you say, character of the Old Testament. Abraham yeah. is the one that he made yeah. the covenant with. That's right. You see that that you, your your offspring will be multiplied like the stars of heaven and like the sands of of the beach. I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that that refers to the church in the future. That is the covenant with Abraham. Uh, then the law came with Moses because of the transgressions of the Jews. See, the, the Levitical law, all of the strictures of the Levitical law were set down because of the, the, the transgressions of the Jews, and the law was an accusation to them. Uh, and so, so there's a number of things to understand, but the, the Old Covenant and Old Testament are essentially the same thing. They go back to the, the agreement made between Mo, uh, between Abraham and God, uh, and that that he will be the author of a people who will be multiplied uh, a, a great deal throughout the ages. That is, that they should usher in, receive, and and, and promote the Messiah, and thereby become the people of of the New Testament in the sense that they will. They would be the the principal authors, as Saint Paul was, of the spread of Christianity. Mm-hmm. See, all of the Jews should have received Christ the way Saint Paul did, or eventually, uh, and and the and uh, and the apostles did, and all the other faithful Jews. They should have all done the same thing, and then they would have fulfilled as a people their role in the covenant. And. Uh, but they did not. Most of them failed in this. A few were faithful, but most of them failed. And that's why their vocation was taken away and was given to the Gentiles. And our Lord makes reference to that many times in the Gospel, particularly through parables, how the the Jews will lose their vocation as the chosen people and will forfeit it to the Gentiles. It's a testament to... um the patience and mercy of Almighty God when he keeps giving mankind another chance, another chance. Um, yes, until there's no more chances left. Yes. And that was the destruction of Jerusalem. He even gave them a chance for those 30-some years between his death and the destruction of Jerusalem. That was a time of transition uh, in which the Jews still had a chance to listen to the apostles and to to listen to the gospel after all had been said and done, the resurrection of Christ. But they still rejected them in general. Now, don't forget St. Peter baptized 5,000 people on Pentecost Sunday. So we're not saying all Jews, but in general they rejected him. Uh, Josephus says at the destruction of Jerusalem, the Romans put to death through one form or other, either through uh, starvation or or just battle, one million Jews. Gosh, right? that's a staggering figure for the old for the uh, for that time. The population, the entire population of the city of Rome, is estimated to have been one million at that oh time, gosh. and that was the the the, the megapolis of <laughs> the ancient world. The, you know, Rome, you know, was the New York or the whatever, Tokyo of, of the, of the ancient world. And the, the, whereas, uh, there were so many Jews in Jerusalem at the time that a thousand, uh, one million perished 
because of the siege of the Romans from, you know, this, I think went from 68 to, to 70. Uh, one million perished, and probably most of those because of starvation, because they were inside the city and it was cut off. And uh, that was the, the final, that was the end. And tomorrow is Palm Sunday, and uh, our Lord, in coming around Mount Olivet from Bethany, uh, he stops and weeps over Jerusalem, Jerusalem being very visible from Mount Olivet. If you've ever seen pictures of Jerusalem, uh, it, uh, Mount Olivet sits opposite it on the east side, and there is a big valley, and then Jerusalem comes up again on, on a, a hillside, a high hillside. From that view, he could have seen the magnificent temple, uh, yeah. the, the, you know, something like seeing St. Peter's Basilica, and it would have been gleaming in the morning sun, uh, all white marble, absolutely beautiful thing, a sight to see, uh, as it rose from the, from the, uh, the depths of the Valley of Cedron. Now, there was a, a little brook that went through the Valley of Cedron, and, and then a, a very high, steep cliff, and on the top of it was the, was the temple. And that's what he's looking at, and he's weeping. Right because he knows what's coming, and he predicts that, that the Gentiles will come and, and destroy them. Uh, and um, that happened on Palm Sunday, uh, that very moving act. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and then he, he proceeds to go into Jerusalem. Uh, and uh, so uh, I, I think I'm off the... Uh, no, that's fine. <laughs> what um, to talk about. It was a good rabbit hole to go down, uh, my Lord, but... Um uh, uh, just in terms of the uh, the remainder of the Bible, the New Testament, um, I was, and it was an interesting point I wanted to raise, was as part of my research for this show, I've been listening to a history lecture series by um, a, a fellow called Thomas F. Madden, a professor of history at St. Louis University. Um, he's, I believe, a Novus Ordo um, person, um, and so I, I I listened to it with uh, with that in mind, but I uh, wanted to see what um, uh, secular you know historians um, would would how they would regard the the, the facts of uh, of the rise of Christianity. Um, it's called From Jesus to Christianity: uh, A History of the Early Church. And I, I listened to it to get an understanding of the way, as I said, ap academic history sees the rise of Christianity. The very title is modernist. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I had that in mind, but what struck me as I listened to sort of half of it was um, he used the Gospels and most of the New Testament to show the historical facts. So the point that stuck in my mind is that even the secularists um, will treat the Gospels as authentic documents, um, as, as documents of fact. Um, which is which oh, is be careful there, though. The uh, the modernists have destroyed sacred scripture because, in principle, they don't admit anything supernatural mm. in it. And now there's degrees of modernism, you know, but they they can't be counted on to see it as the word of God and objectively true. Mm. Uh, for them, uh, it's the work of human beings, and uh, inspiration itself is is much modified mm. from the Catholic point of view. Inerrancy, which means the infallibility of the scriptures, is called into question. Uh, modernism started with the, uh, with the sacred scriptures. Yes. They, they were Catholics who were following the Protestant 
liberal and modernist, whatever you want to call it, ideas, the rationalist ideas concerning sacred scripture. Mm-hmm. And it crept into the Catholic Church. That was the beginning of modernism. Uh, the modernist Loisie was the uh, was uh, famous, the most famous of all the modernists, and he destroyed sacred scripture. Uh, that's why I say that title is typically uh, modernist, because mm-hmm. he said that there was first Jesus, and then then the church came. See, that, yeah, that yeah. the church was a, a, an addition upon Jesus. That first you just had Jesus spreading his gospel, and then it was organized into a church. That very title is a giveaway that he's a modernist. Yeah, I'll, I'll... Our Blessed Lord is Christianity. There was no yes. distinction between him and Christianity. Uh, and, uh, and also Christianity is the Catholic Church. And, is, you know, just uh, the, the, the very term Christianity, without identifying it exclusively with Roman Catholicism, is itself a modernist idea. Yeah. I'll take it as um, I'm duly chastised, my Lord, and uh, we'll put this down <laughs> to don't try this at home, folks. Yes. I, I, you would be better watching uh, cartoons like <laughs> Donald Duck or Mickey Mouse instead of watching that nonsense and rub it. You may not have a trained ear. If I were listening to it, I could probably pick out a lot of modernist things in it. But yeah, for a lay person to listen to that is very, very dangerous because modernism is death by pinpricks. Yeah. You know, a little here and there you get a comment, and, and little by little your belief in the Holy Gospels is destroyed until you're, you are bled to death by these little pinpricks that they make. Very dangerous. Very, very dangerous. And as I said, watch Mickey Mouse or Donald Duck <laughs> instead of nonsense like that. There is more seriousness and gravitas in a Donald Duck cartoon than there is in modernist theology. Well, I'm just... You can um, quote me on that. If yeah. there's ever a, like a, a book of quotes of Bishop Sanborn, please put that one in. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, moving on. Um, so this is not in the text, my Lord. Uh, I hope you don't mind me asking, um, it, but it relates to the New Testament. Um how do we come to define the Bible as it is today? Uh, just it, we, we might cover it later in, in further shows, but um, there were many more writings of the apostles and other um, you know holy men um, who decided, and I think it's worthwhile covering now just briefly, who decided that these books are the inspired word of God and should form the New Testament uh, because it comes down to the... Um, the, the, the notion of sola scriptura and uh, with the uh, the Protestants and they you know literally or or, or, or otherwise um, talk about the Bible and they base everything on scripture um, but I think the irony of this is is the Catholic Church defined it so if we could just cover that a little bit yes the the word Bible didn't really exist until the Middle Ages uh, perhaps the early Middle Ages maybe the seventh century uh, as the collection of inspired books it really just means book. Uh, so the uh, so the the each of the inspired texts, the, the book of this or the book of that, were considered separately. Uh, and the the uh, it was the Catholic Church who discerned what were the true scriptures from uh, those that were untrue. 
if you could see the list of false gospels, you you would be shocked how many false gospels were spread around the early church, and which recounted all sorts of bizarre and odd things. Yeah, you would be appalled, and you can see that the Catholic Church was very clear and careful in rejecting all of these false gospels and in holding only to the original four. Uh, it, 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 it is really an eye-opener to, to see how much false gospel literature there was in the early Church. And that attests to the fact that you need an authority to determine what is the true gospel and what isn't. If I were to say to a Protestant, prove to me that the book that you're holding is the inspired Word of God. What would he answer? How would he prove that? Prove to me that the the words that you find in the, in the Gospel of St. Matthew were actually the Word of God and, and the true contents of the Gospel of, of St. Matthew. Mm. Prove to me, if I hand you the, the Los Angeles telephone book, that this is not the inspired Word of God. Yeah. They really have nothing. Where did they get their Bibles from except from their own ministers? Where did the ministers get them from except from ministers before them? Where did they get them from except from Martin Luther? Where did Luther get them from except from the Catholic Church? Exactly right. Why is it that these books are considered inspired and other books are rejected? Luther himself called St. James an epistle of straw, and yet mm. that is considered to be now, uh, in by Lutherans, to be a true epistle. Yes. Uh, Revelation was rejected by Luther, uh, that is, the, the Apocalypse, was uh, uh, rejected by Luther as being uh, a series of fairy tales. And now it's, <laughs> I mean, the Protestants accept what they call the Book of Revelation, which is the Apocalypse, yeah. as one of their their mainstays of, of, of prophetical books. Mm. You know, so the, uh, the, the canon came down to us from the Catholic Church. It, it, you need the voice of God in the world in order to guarantee what the true religion is. And that voice of God has been given to the authority of the Catholic Church and the Catholic Church teaches with the authority of God. If you remove that, then all you have is the authority of human beings telling you this is the Word of God. How do they know it's the Word of God? Who decided it? See, that's the, one of the fundamental problems of Protestantism, is that they do not have a basis for their own book, which they say is the basis of their whole religion. And that basis can only be found in an authority which can teach in the name of God. Exactly right. So it's been my uh, source of frustration when I'm um, debating these topics with my Protestant family. Um, some of my family members, um, I'm the only Catholic in my family, and um, much of their, their chagrin. But um, uh, we talk about the Bible and, um, and sacred scripture and but you got this from the Catholic Church. Um, why aren't you Catholic? And they, they can't answer it. 
but uh, I don't think they want to listen. So that <laughs> that probably it's covers furthermore it. true that the there were there were no sacred scriptures, at least in the New Testament, for twenty years after the death of Christ. Mm. Mm. So, so what did they? What did they on? do? Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> So that covers the uh, the the lesson um, four in in the book, my lord. So thanks for that. Um, I, we would like to remind you that you are listening to Apologetics on member supported Restoration Radio. I'm your host Phil Stone, and I'm joined by His Lordship Bishop Donald Sanborn, Rector of Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida. And today we've been discussing, as I just said, the documents of Christian Revelation, the Gospels, and also a discussion on the Bible in general. We want to remind you that Apologetics is a production of member-supported Restoration Radio. All rights are reserved and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. To obtain permission, please write to mail, mail at truerestoration.org. And now we come to lesson number five, my lord, titled Biographical Notes on the Evangelists. It's quite a nice, mm-hmm. succinct summary of Saints Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and their Gospels and really establishes nicely the credibility of the authors themselves. So can we uh, first talk about uh, Saint Matthew, my Lord? Uh, yes. Uh, most people are, are somewhat familiar with uh, Saint Matthew. We know that he was the tax collector, that is, a Jew who worked for the Romans uh, in collecting taxes for the Romans. Uh, they were absolutely detested as the lowest of the low by the Jews, uh, having to collect for the, the hated Romans. And so the call of Matthew was something shocking to the Jews. To call a publican, it was as shocking as Mary Magdalene's forgiveness, or the forgiveness of Mary Magdalene. Uh, shocking. Uh, how could you do this? If you were a prophet, you wouldn't do this. And uh, as we know, uh, our Lord said that he is here to call sinners and not to to, to call the, in other words, not to um, convert the just, but to convert sinners. And so, uh, so his original name was Levi, and uh, our Lord changed his name to Matthew, which means the gift of God. Yes. Uh, uh, and uh, we know the very dramatic call. He was sitting with, the, it, it, it has been immortalized by a picture of Caravaggio, which is hanging in the church of St. Louis of the French in Rome. And uh, it shows him uh, sitting uh, with his publican friends, perhaps in a tavern, dressed, all dressed up, <clears throat> and uh, our blessed Lord is pointing his finger at him, very, very uh, rigorously, and and obviously calling his name, and Saint Matthew is looking down, thinking, "Oh, not me, not me! It just can't <laughs> be." But the grace of God draws him, uh, as it drew all of the other apostles, draws him, and he follows uh, our blessed Lord. Uh, so he is witness to all of the events of the gospel. Uh, and we don't know too much about him after uh, he, after our Lord uh, ascended into heaven. Uh, we do know, however, that he write, wrote his gospel in the original Aramaic tongue, which our Lord would have spoken, and which was the common language of the time. It was a cross between the uh, Chaldean language and the Hebrew language. 
because they had been, uh, ever since the Jews had been transferred to Babylonia in the uh, uh, 6th century B.C., the, um, they had uh, lost Hebrew as their common language, and they ended up with this Hebrew-Aramaic mix, uh, excuse me, Hebrew-Chaldean mix, which was known as Aramaic. Right. And uh, so that's, uh, the Gospels were originally written in that. <clears throat> and then it was translated into Greek. So what we have is a Greek translation. And it's important to note that the only inspired text that there is is the original. Uh, that is to say that, the, that what came from the pen of St. Matthew is inspired. Translations are not inspired in the sense that they, there is not an, an absolute... Uh, the translator is not inspired. That doesn't mean to say St. Matthew's Gospel is not the Word of God. But it is to say that the translation is not inspired. So the, the Vulgate translation of the, uh, which is the Latin translation of the Bible, is not an inspired as a translation. That means it's not assisted by God uh, as a translation. It may be a perfectly accurate translation, and it is. But the, there is not a, an act of inspiration in translating it. So you have to understand that. Uh, when you're picking up a Bible in English, you're reading a translation of it. It's the original language that is the inspired text. Uh, and that's because a word has a meaning. And it has a meaning in the original language. A translation is, is always, can be, excuse me, it can be good and accurate but it is a translation. Mm. And uh, so it's just something to understand about the sacred scriptures. Right. Um, um, so it, he went to uh, Ethiopia and preached the gospel, and then he preached the gospel to the Parthians, who were a very warlike people who defeated the Romans many times in what is now Iraq. Right. Uh, and uh, went to Macedonia, which is north of Greece, and then Syria, and uh, he was eventually martyred. Uh, and uh, so, um, uh, but that's all that is known, and, and the course of the events is not known. The martyrology says he was uh, he was martyred in Ethiopia. So uh, we just don't know. Uh, we don't know much about what the apostles did, except Saint Peter. Uh, and St. Paul. We know the most about St. Paul, uh, but and we know something of St. Peter. The first part of the Acts of the Apostles concerns St. Peter, the second part mostly St. Paul, uh, but, uh, you know, a lot of it is sacred tradition, uh, which is very authoritative. Mm. Uh, but we don't know uh, a great deal about the lives of the Apostles after the Ascension of Christ. So, on to um, the character of uh, St. Matthew's Gospel. Yes, he is the most, uh, how would you say, uh, his, his, the order of events is chronological. Uh, it's, uh, he uh, describes them in a very orderly way. Uh, he, uh, he simply describes the history of Christ uh, with detail. His Passion, for example, which we read on Palm Sunday, is the longest of the, of the Passion. 
narratives. And uh, he uh, is simply uh, intent upon communicating the message of Christ, you might say, his discourses and his what he said and his many miracles, the life of Christ. Um, and uh, he was writing for a Jewish audience, so uh, he stressed the fulfillment of the Messianic prophecies to the Jews. That That is the best apologetical argument for the Jews. Mm. The, the Jews, uh, in principle, uh, you know, unless they have been unfaithful, but in principle they adhere to what was the true religion. Mm. Their one obstacle to Catholicism is Christ. So if, if the veil is taken away from their eyes concerning the mess- messianic dignity of Christ and his divinity, then they automatically accept everything he teaches. We would not have to convince them of the, the truth of the Blessed Sacrament or of the Trinity, uh, because, as we would, say, uh, a Muslim, or in the case of the Blessed Sacrament, a Protestant. Everything is there for them. Uh, they would pass over to Catholicism very, very easily if they could get beyond the, the question of Christ. Mm. And so the apologetical method with the Jews is to show that Christ fulfilled the the prophecies. And if if uh, a Jewish person is of good faith, and that is he wants to discover the truth and and has a good attitude toward doing what is right and believing what he, God wants him to believe, uh, he would see that Christ did in fact fulfill the prophecies and that he should embrace the Catholic Church. Uh, so that was uh, St. Matthew's point, was that you should be Catholics because Christ is the true Messiah. Yes. So, uh, question 34, a biographical note on Mark. Um, you've covered Mark uh, quite well. Um, um, sorry, you've covered well, Matthew quite well. Well, it's very important that he was the companion of St. Peter. Mm. And... So really, you're reading St. Peter's Gospel when you're reading St. Mark's Gospel. And that's very interesting because St. Peter was very close to Christ, obviously, and would have had many insights that the others would not have had. Uh, So that's important that... uh, uh, Remember, it was Peter, James, and John who were always selected as, we might say, the elite of the Apostles. And... So St. John gives some very, very clear quotations of, of Christ's message. Excuse me. But we do find incidents in St. Mark that are remarkable, not, not to make a pun, but to, they are remarkable for the, 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 uh, the detail uh, that St. Mark always includes in it, which seems to come <coughs> from St. Peter, who would have been very close to the event or, or to the words of Christ. Mm. Uh, St. Matthew, not, you know, of course, was eyewitness, but uh, was more removed, say, from, from the events than St. Peter and St. John. And yeah. St. Luke, as we know, was either not an eyewitness or he was just one of the disciples of Christ. Mm. So, so that's uh, the big thing about St. Peter. Uh, excuse me, about St. Mark. And he founded the Church of Alexandria. That Alexandria was the second largest city in the Roman Empire, after Rome itself. Alexandria is 
at the delta of the Nile River mm-hmm. as it pours into the um, into the Mediterranean Sea, and so that's why uh, that that has oh it's a very very strong tradition that he founded the uh, Sea of Alexandria, and it was the Venetians who got his body out of Alexandria and brought it to Venice. Mm-hmm. And, and the whole story of that is very interesting, which I won't go into here, but they had to uh, get it out with great subtlety, let's put it that way. So the, the text talks about Paul and Barnabas, um, who was Mark's cousin, left Jerusalem 45 or 65 AD. They took um, Mark with them to Antioch, but then after that he left them. Is that... Um, yes, uh, apparently Paul and Mark had a fight. <laughs> which uh, you know, seems impossible among such holy people, but it is generally true that uh, holiness does not exclude dissimilarity uh, of character. Mm. See, so you can have two very dissimilar characters who are both saints, mm. and because of their dissimilar characters, they fight. They clash, yeah. They have disagreements. And and uh, uh, there were a number of saints uh, in the Renaissance that didn't get along very well. I think I think Saint Ignatius was not very high on Saint Philip Neri. <laughs> 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 and uh, uh, the, you know, two different characters entirely. <laughs> uh, and uh, Saint Ignatius was a super choleric personality. Saint Philip Neri was certainly a uh, sanguine. Sanguine, yes. Uh, and those typically, you know, the, the, the cholerics consider sanguines to be flighty and kind of, <laughs> you know, not very serious. And then, you know, vice versa, the sanguines consider the cholerics to be just too much. And and so if saints can fight. They have fought, you know, in a sense, fought. They, they have disagreed. They have found their characters displeasing to each other. And so Paul decided uh, um, uh, to uh, get rid of St. Mark. <laughs> so, the book's a little uh, bit more um, diplomatic. It says his reason for separating from the apostles is not clearly known, but perhaps he shrank from the toil involved. Um, but um, that, that sort of gels with me because um, I'm... Uh, St. Philip Neri is my patron saint, um, being my namesake, and also um, similar characters. So I, c- I can get what, you, what you're saying there, my lord. Yes. And Mark became the companion of St. Peter at that point. Mm. And so, as I said, his gospel is pretty much St. Peter's gospel. Now, St. Mark is also, by tradition, considered to be the one that, uh, uh, in, the, in his gospel, uh, who ran away naked in the Garden of Olives, uh, when our Lord was arrested. Right. That, is, that is traditionally considered to be St. Mark. Mm. Uh, but again, uh, we don't know that. So the, uh, so, the guard grabbed him and um, yes. by, by the cloak, and, and he left, yes. leaving the cloak in the guard's hand. Yeah. Yes. It's, now, by the way, another thing, naked in... in traditional uh, in the, the gospel literature doesn't mean what we think of it as completely naked. Uh, it means you still had your underwear oh, on. Garments, yeah. uh, it's just that you were missing your cloak. <laughs> and uh, so it talks about, you know, St. Peter fishing while he was naked and so forth. That mm. just means that they were 
probably stripped to the waist. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, in a pair of shorts, essentially, mm. uh, that you shouldn't think that they were stark naked uh, mm. or that our Lord was crucified naked, the stripping of the garments. Uh, the Romans always left the loincloth on the on their victims on the cross. They had a, a sense of decency. They never stripped anyone totally naked. Mm. So we can uh, we can say that this is still still OK for uh, for children this this show my lord yes yes <laughs> and they they should be told that that that's what that meant mm. in those times just that you were missing your your outer clothing and and uh, probably just meant uh, that you were in sort of a bathing suit situation yes <laughs> <laughs> so the date of mark's death is uh is uncertain um yeah, jerome gives the eighth year of nero but it occurred more probably some years later, is what the text says. Yes, uh, it's, those are very hard to say. St. Jerome is a good uh, and reliable author, uh, but uh, it's, it's just very hard to say. Mm. And uh, quite a remarkable uh, martyrdom dragged through the streets of Alexandria. Yes, yes, great martyr of the Church. Okay, on to uh, the character of uh, St. Mark's Gospel. Uh, yes, as we said, uh, he gets his information particularly from St. Peter uh, and other eyewitnesses. Um, it's the shortest of the four Gospels, uh, uh, but, again, the, the accuracy of time, place, and persons is, has the best detail in St. Mark. Um, and he was writing for a Gentile audience, and he emphasizes the miracles of Christ. Mm. Uh, but he's very terse. Uh, his sentences are short. Mm. Uh, you get much more in the other Gospels concerning the things that he's talking about, but he always includes details that you don't find in the other Gospels, uh, which come probably feeder. <clears throat> right. Um, so it's... It, is one-fourth of his gospel is taken up with the miracles, uh, 18 of which are recorded, and two are not related by the other evangelists. So again, the synoptics occasionally include things that the others don't, mm. uh, and this is a, uh, one of the cases. He has only four parables, but many others are related by the other evangelists. Um, and the human feelings and emotions of Christ are described, again, attesting to St. Peter, because St. Peter would have been very close to Christ. Yes. Uh, and, um, the, um, uh, and then the weaknesses of the apostles are also related. So it, it's a very, uh, we might say, real gospel. And it says, uh, personalities come out in, in St. Peter. In St. Mark's, Mark's Gospel. It, right. It's a, a personal and very real kind of Gospel. Unfortunately, we don't see it that much. Uh, we see it on Easter Sunday. It is his relation of the, of the events of Easter Sunday that is, is placed in the Gospel on Easter. He has a, a very mm -hmm. special place. It's the greatest of all of the feasts of the Church. And uh, the, uh, the, the Gospel is that of St. Mark. I think it only occurs one other time in the in the um, cycle of sermons, uh, excuse me, a cycle of gospels in uh, on the Sundays 
of the whole year. I think there's only one other time that we see the Gospel of St. Mark. Uh, so it is, in a way, the forgotten Gospel, but it is a very interesting Gospel. There are only 16 chapters, where there are 20-some-odd, almost 30 in St. Matthew. I was just going to say he's coming through as a bit of a details person as well, so perhaps he was sanguine melancholy. Um, but uh, I, I don't know. I, it's hard <laughs> to say. I don't know. Well, if he didn't get along with St. Paul, well, I'll talk to say why he didn't, but St. Yeah. Paul would have been a fairly difficult person to get along with, though. St. <clears throat> Paul was a brand. And a firebrand, right. Yes, a person of no nonsense. <laughs> uh, no slack. Uh, I think he would have been a little difficult to get along with. He, you, he would have had to have a personality very special uh, in his assistant mm. to uh, <laughs> to get along with. It. You know, so uh, it's hard to say. But I think that what you're reading in Saint Mark is more Saint Peter than Saint Mark, right. as far as what is being related. Uh, I, I would. Uh, uh, saint Jerome says that while St. Peter narrated, Mark wrote. Right. That, that uh, St. Jerome uh, knew an awful lot. He went to the Holy Land and lived in the Holy Land. He, he would have learned a lot of things from tradition there. Mm. Um, and St. Uh, Justin Martyr, who is writing in uh, 138 A.D., which is a very not very long after the, all of the events of the Gospel, uh, calls the Gospel of Mark the memoir of Peter. The memoir of Peter, right. So that just about covers uh, St. Mark's Gospel, wouldn't you say, my Lord? Yes, I think so. So if we go in now on to the um, uh, uh, St. Luke's Gospel and uh, a biographical note on uh, St. Luke, he's covered in the text on page 35. Yes, uh, he was not a Jew, but a Greek. And uh, he was a native of Antioch, which was probably the third largest city in the empire. It was a big city at the time. It's what, it, it, it was situated in what is now probably Lebanon, southern Lebanon, or maybe northern Israel. Uh, it was a large city, a big port, a commercial area. Um, and uh, he uh, knew Jewish customs because of of his uh, proximity to Jews, uh, and he knew the sacred writings of the Hebrews, as many of the ancient peoples did. The uh, Jews were considered to have uh, a wisdom literature that no other people had. Mm. And that's why the Magi, for example, knew about the coming of Christ, because they were studying the Jewish, uh, the, excuse me, the Jewish uh, scriptures. And uh, don't forget, the Jews had been dispersed uh, all over the empire of, Alexand of Alexander in the, uh, the 300s, 200s BC. So the, the the Jews were in all of the the Eastern Empire, and they eventually got into the Western Empire with the Romans too. There was a, a community of Jews in practically every town or city of the empire, and so. Uh, the, he was familiar with the writings of the Hebrews, and he was familiar with Aramaic. He was from that area. So uh, he was a physician, uh, as St. Paul calls him, my most dear physician. Uh, and um, uh, he uh, studied medicine at Tarsus, which is the town uh, 
of St. Paul, uh, where St. Paul was from. And so he perhaps knew St. Paul in Tarsus. Um, <clears throat> uh, St. Luke traveled extensively, uh, uh, and uh, so he was familiar with the, with the empire, uh, and he became the companion of St. Paul. Uh, and therefore, when we're reading the Gospel of St. Luke, to a great extent we're reading St. Paul. Um, <clears throat> um, St. Jerome says that uh, uh, St. Paul is thinking of St. Luke when he says, quote, the brother whose praise is in the Gospel through all the churches, unquote. Mm. So that, uh, that's almost certainly referring to St. Luke. Um, uh so he drew his information from eyewitnesses and documents, which is completely compatible with inspiration. Mm. You don't have to be an eyewitness in order to be an inspired author. Uh, he says this at the beginning of his Gospel, quote, having diligently attained to all things from the beginning. Mm. Uh, <clears throat> and he said he wrote down what was told to him by eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word referring, obviously, to the apostles mm. and apostolic men and the people that were closely associated with the apostles. Um, <clears throat> uh, Luke was with St. Paul when he was imprisoned in Rome, uh, and it is certain that he must have met, uh, that he met several of the apostles and the disciples in his journeys with St. Paul. Um, <clears throat> Luke knew the Gospel written by St. Mark. He also met Peter frequently, uh, and uh, that he, it seems likely that he helped Peter in writing his first letter, as the Greek style of St. Luke is evident. St. Luke writes a nice Greek. Mm. St. Mark does not write a very nice Greek. <laughs> you can tell that he uh, had a little <laughs> trouble with it. And uh, the St. Matthew is in a, is in a uh, translation, so it's a good Greek. Uh, St. John writes in a very Hebraized Greek. It, it's good, I mean, in the sense that it, it doesn't have grammatical errors or anything, but it, 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 there's a lot of Hebraism in it. And um, whereas St. Luke's Greek is the best, uh, probably, of all of the, of the Gospels, St. Paul writes in a good Greek as well. Now, he was born and raised, educated in Tarsus, which was all the Greek-speaking Roman Empire. Uh, he was uh, obviously very intelligent, very probably very well-educated uh, in what they call rhetoric and all of the skills of communicating. Uh, you know, you can tell from his speeches and his command of the language that he was somebody who was uh, of superior intelligence. Uh, and uh, so his Greek is very good, too. Um, uh, Luke was never married. He wrote his Gospel about 61 A.D. and the Acts of the Apostles in 63 A.D. And uh, he died. Uh, it, it's, uh, the breviary says he had a peaceful death. Mm. However, uh, St. Jerome... Um, uh, or, or rather, it is another tradition that he was a martyr. In any case, his mass is said with red vestments, uh, but the the uh, breviary, which comes from the Acts of the Martyrs and the, the early, uh, all of those Acts of the early uh, Catholics, 
uh, says that he died in peace. Mm. Now, you know, that doesn't necessarily exclude martyrdom, but it, it seems to. So we're not entirely sure about that. It was uh, he was he also died. a painter, and uh, it, 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 the at least one of the paintings that he did of the Blessed Virgin Mary is ensconced in Rome in the Church of St. Mary Major. Mm. He was reasonably old when he died, my Lord, about 74, is it? Yes, yes, that was quite old for that time. Yes. So on to the character of uh, Luke's Gospel in particular. Yes, uh, his uh, his Gospel is longer even than that of St. Matthew, and the Acts of the Apostles is also quite long. Uh, his Greek is elegant, and uh, he uh, has a very good classical style. He's a very accurate historian. Uh, one thing that he always did was summarize, mm. uh, whereas you might get more detail in the other Gospels. He's always summarizing things. That's why you get only four Beatitudes in St. Luke and eight Beatitudes in St. Matthew. Uh, right. So... It's just uh, uh, something that was, uh, you know, his, his idea was to, to pack things into a, a summary. Doesn't mean we could just uh, pick and choose four of the Beatitudes to follow, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, St. Ambrose, I think, or St. Augustine uh, does a, a good job in saying how they are essentially the same. Right. But uh, that he, he, you will see summaries in his Gospel, uh of events that are, are more described in other Gospels. Um, so uh, that, that's uh, St. Luke, uh, and he is, his Gospel is characterized especially by all of the narration concerning the early life of our Lord, mm. the uh, appearance of the angel to Zachary, announcing the conception of St. John the Baptist. That's why his symbol is a bull, because the priest, in the temple, offered bulls. They sacrificed bulls on their altar, on the altar of the temple, and that's distinguished from the Holy of Holies. Uh, there was an outdoor altar, and animals would be sacrificed on that altar the entire day. Uh, and among those animals were bulls, and uh, the he was a priest, Zachary, and the angel Gabriel appeared to him and said that his barren and aged wife would um, bear a son, and he would be St. John the Baptist. His name would be called John. And he didn't believe the angel, and for that he was struck dumb mm. until the day came when it was time to name the boy, and the mother said, Zachary, uh, no, I'm sorry, the, the, uh, the priest that was going to circumcise him assumed that it would be Zachary, and the mother said, St. Elizabeth, no, John is his name. <clears throat> and, uh, and so St. Saint, um, Saint, uh, Zachary wrote on a tablet, because he couldn't speak, John is his name. And then his tongue was loose, and, and he uh, said the Benedictus, the, what is now the Benedictus, that is a praise of God for essentially the work of redemption. Mm. Uh, and so that all of that is narrated in the Gospel, and of course the Bethlehem and all of the events of our Lord's uh, the glory to God in the highest, uh, that's all in St. Luke, and um, the Annunciation is in St. Luke, 
and there are some details in St. Matthew, uh, but uh, the, the most of it comes from uh, St. Luke. Uh, and so we see the uh, the work of our Blessed Lady there. He could only have known those things from our Blessed Lady. Right. And, and so he must have been in contact with her. Obviously, if he did her portrait, he must have known her and, and learned things from her. Right, we've, uh, that covers uh, St. Luke's Gospel. Now to the final uh, Gospel, which is um, not one of the synoptic gospels the uh, so it's it's quite different in style um so let's talk about a biographical note of uh, saint john yes he uh, was one of the principal apostles we might say uh, he was the brother of james the greater james the greater was the one that went to spain and returned and was the first of the apostles to be put to death in jerusalem uh, so James and John, but that's James the Greater. James the Less was the Bishop of Jerusalem and should not be, uh, he also was martyred, but later on, and he should not be confused with James the Greater. Mm. So uh, so Santiago de Compostela, that's actually St. James of Compostela uh, in Spain, that is named for St. James the Greater. Um, so <clears throat> uh, our uh, St. John was had an intimacy with our blessed Lord. Our Lord must have told him things that he did not tell any of the other apostles. St. John was uh, younger than the other apostles, and he was committed to a state of virginity. And our Lord always loves virginity, and therefore uh, there was a, a, you know, a relationship between our Lord and St. John which was much stronger than what he had with the other apostles, even St. Peter. He did not choose St. John to rule the Church, but he did choose him to know a lot of secrets of his heart, and these come out in his Gospel, uh, and uh, to know uh, an insight uh, into our Lord's uh, divine nature that the other apostles did not have as much of. You know, Certainly they all believed it and knew it, but uh, it's like a great contemplative. St. John is like a, a contemplative who just was deeper into the mystery of Christ than the other apostles. And that's why it, his, his gospel is, is a marvel to read. Uh, it's such a beautiful thing, and, and the, the details that come out in the gospel, and especially those detailed speeches of Christ and comments of Christ, uh, uh, the, the whole uh, narration of Lazarus, the raising of Lazarus, mm. uh, is a beautiful thing, a dramatic thing. It's, it's, you can picture it so clearly as, as you're reading those words. Uh, the, the comment of uh, uh, Martha to him and the comment of St. Mary Magdalene to him. Uh, and uh, um, you know, subtleties, the, uh, the wedding of Cana, the, the, um, Our Lady's speaking to him so subtly uh, that they have no wine. Uh, Our Lord knew that they had no wine. Uh, There is a, it's a beautiful thing because Our Lady was leaving it entirely in his hands by that comment. Uh, She knew that he knew, but by saying it that way, they have no wine, she was saying, if it's your will, give them some wine. Yeah. 
Uh, it's just uh, you know, the, the subtlety of it. You don't get that in the other Gospels, that conversation. And then the uh, somewhat difficult thing that he said back to her. What is that to me and to thee, woman? And uh, there are various meanings assigned to that, but uh, uh, probably it means that this should not come between us. This is not a problem. Mm. Uh, that's, uh, so, uh, and then our Lord, of course, performs the miracle. And uh, so St. John is full of, of those episodes. The, the great uh, speech in John chapter 6 concerning the Holy Eucharist uh, is another masterpiece. Uh, and it's a masterpiece because it quotes our Blessed Lord. It's just to see... The, it, it makes most present to us, I think, the, the, the person of Christ, this Gospel, than any of the other Gospels. Mm. You have a feeling of being there. You have a feeling of of experiencing it when he's speaking. Um, so, um, uh, you know, it's, it's a beautiful gospel. So, uh, he lived in uh, Asia Minor, which is Turkey today, and uh, in um, uh, and in the last decades uh, uh, in Ephesus, the last decades of the first century in Ephesus, and he wrote the gospel late in his life, uh, in the 90s uh, A.D. Mm. And most people don't realize that. They think the Apocalypse was written uh, first, right. and, and uh, rather last, than the gospel first, but no. Once again, it struck me as amazing that he wrote the gospel more than 60 years after our Lord's death. Um, that's a, you know, a miracle of divine grace. But as you said, <clears throat> he was also the uh, disciple whom Jesus loved and so had that intimate relationship, as you said, so it would have been pretty clear in his mind anyway. Yes. Uh, yeah. The, you can tell that our blessed Lord made such an impression on the, the, the apostles that those speeches, the things that he said, were just burned into their minds. Yeah. And they, they never let go of them. Uh, and... Uh, uh, you know, but again, uh, inspiration involves also the correct memory concerning everything. Yeah. But I, I'm sure that they, even apart from inspiration, they they knew those things quite well. And in um, in the text, it says after Pentecost, John with Peter took a prominent part in guiding the destinies of the infant church in Jerusalem. Yes, yes, he was uh, very much a, a a collaborator of Saint Peter. He was. Um, he didn't found any, uh, well, Ephesus is considered to be founded by him, but uh, he was more of a contemplative person than an active person. He, there's, there's no, uh, he didn't go out into, you know, he didn't go to Spain, he didn't go to Ethiopia, he didn't go to any of those places. He, he don't forget, he did have to take care of Our Lady, too. Mm. So, uh, but she was a contemplative as well, so, you know, I think Our Lord picked <laughs> the right person to... Yeah to uh, take care of her, and so he was more uh, at home, we might say, and uh, stayed in one place, more or less. Mm -hmm. And uh, we do know that he was in Rome. Uh, he was uh, martyred in the sense that he was uh, he should have died. He was lowered into a pot of boiling oil in front of the Latin gate, which is... Uh, 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 
and I believe it's the one by the Lateran Basilica, but uh, in any case, uh, that's where the, that took place. Uh, and uh, But he did not die from it. Uh, that was in, you know, 60s A.D., more or less. And uh, and then uh, uh, then he, he died a natural death in uh, the 90s A.D. Yeah, and that's why his mass is in white on December 27th. This is the only uh, one of the apostles who's not believed to have been martyred. Is that that's correct, isn't it? No, he's it's it's certain that he wasn't. Yeah, I mean, it, but that was a martyrdom to go through that. He should have died from it. Yeah, but he, in fact he didn't die. So, uh, but he's not considered a martyr. You know? Yeah. So, um, and he died on the island of uh, Patmos, where he wrote. Yes, the, that's where he had his vision of the apocalypse. Mm. Yes. Is there any more we need to talk about um, St. John, my Lord, um, or his gospel? No, just the, the, he, the purpose of the writing of the gospel, as I said, was to emphasize the divinity of Christ, because there were heretics that were denying the divinity of Christ, and uh, so that's why he's very choosy, we might say, of the, the events of Christ's life, uh, in order to to emphasize them more and to describe them more, uh, in order to bring out his divinity, mm. uh, so he's not interested in a in a chronology. He's interested in just taking certain events of Christ's life and and exposing them. All right. Well, th- thanks very much, my lord. That just about covers uh, chapters 4 and 5 an introduction to the Gospels as we uh, close out this episode is there anything um, more you would like to add my Lord Uh, just that uh, the lay people should read the Holy Scriptures but they should read an accurate translation in English that's the Douay Reims version not the confraternity version Uh, they should look and see in their Bibles what, uh, what they have uh, the only good one is the Douay Rings, and uh, they should read a good commentary, a very traditional commentary. There is something called the Haydock Bible, which has a, a great commentary at the bottom, uh, and they should uh, uh, be familiar with the events of our Lord's life. They, they should study uh, the, the the New Testament more. They, they you know... We are, in a way, shamed by certain Protestants because we don't know our sacred scripture. Mm. And so Catholics should take the time to learn more about sacred scripture and to take time to actually sit and read the Holy Gospel and be familiar with the Holy Gospel and the epistles of St. Paul. The epistles of St. Paul are loaded with doctrine. Uh, and the Acts of the Apostles, they would be very surprised what they, they find in those wonderful books. And, and, and most people just never open them. So I, I would encourage them to do that. Guilty as charged, my lord. Um, yes, we uh, we do tend to say how important it is uh, spiritual reading, but we'll pick up a book of uh, of the saints, uh, perhaps the Imitation of Christ, but um, the Gospels are right there, and uh, you know should, we should get familiar with them uh, even more. Perhaps that's an idea for a new show to talk about the uh, the life of our Lord, but um, maybe I'll talk to management about that. <laughs> <laughs> So in this episode, we've covered the documents of Christian revelation, the Gospels and uh, brief biographies of writers of the Gospels, um, Saints Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. 
Um, I would just want to thank you again, my Lord, for your time and being with us on this episode. Thank you and, and God bless you. Thank you very much. If you have any questions for Bishop Sanborn or feedback on this episode, we would love to hear from you. You can contact us at apologetics at truerestoration.org and we will pass along your questions or comments to Bishop Sanborn and rest assured that all correspondence with us is strictly confidential. All of us here at Member Supported Restoration Radio hope that you found this show to be informative, helpful or beneficial to you and your faith. In return, please think of offering a Mass or Rosary or even a simple Ave for our work the next time you pray. For the Restoration, I'm Phil Stone. May God bless you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.